If you would, and um, I, I'll let you start in Genesis, work our way through. Um, there's just so much when we talk about the doctrine of salvation, if you like the theological term, soteriology, and um, we did a summary, uh, really uh, trying to just understand that salvation is the work of God, that salvation is because of our sins. And uh, just want to reiterate just a little bit very quickly and then get into some of these terms. And and um, I, I want to try not to go too far afield, but Genesis chapter 2 and verse 17 God told them, in the day that ye eat thereof, ye shall surely die. James chapter 1 tells us, sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Romans 5. And death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Romans chapter 7. And I want us to stop there for a moment and... Just look at one one point in particular. This is a, a point that a lot of people stumble over and have questions about. And uh, Paul explains it fairly uh, uh, well right here. Not fairly well, very well for those who will read it in Romans chapter 7. But uh, let's go to... Uh, Verse 7 of Romans 7, it says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence, For without the law, sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died, and the commandment which was ordained to life I found to be unto death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it slew me. Wherefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just. And good. Now, Saul, uh, Paul, I'm sorry, is in the middle of an exclamation, uh, an explanation uh, of the work of God's law in our lives. But right here, he says, "Listen," he said, "The I had not known sin, except the law told me I shall not, I should not lust. Thou shalt not covet." And he said, once I understood that, that I wasn't supposed to want things, then I began to see in my life all the things that I wanted, he said, and it wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. Now, concupiscence is one of those big words that scare people off, but it just means a corrupt Mind, and, and by the way, your mind does not need 
to be corrupted in many of the ways that we think about being corrupted to be corrupted. Uh, I'll tell you what, the, the guys who uh, love money on Wall Street and all they think about is making another dollar, their minds are just cor- as corrupted as the person who locks himself in a room with their computer screen and delves into all of the nether parts of the uh, Internet, exposing themselves to filth and immorality of every variety. Both are corrupt. Both are what is described here is all manner of concupiscence. He says, for out, without the law, sin was dead. How many of you remember back before you got saved, you did things and you never even thought about it? It didn't bother you. Then you became a Christian. And you thought you understood you had sin. Then you begin reading in the Bible and you say, whoa, wait a minute, I, I was totally messed up here. And then you read some more and you find a book, but I was really messed up over here too. And, and then you realize there's not one part of your life that wasn't really messed up. Because sin is in every part of our life. Now Paul is going to tell us something that answers questions and, and, and uh, a question, what happens when a little child dies? What happens when someone dies who is not capable of making a decision for Christ? And you say, where do you get that here? Well, let's just look here in verse number 9. He says, For I was alive without the law once. He said, there was a time in my life when I was alive, but I was not under the law. Now, where there's no law, there is no sin. He said, I was alive without the law. He says, but when the commandment came, now look at the wording here. It's very careful in your Bible. But when the commandment came, and let's just stop there. Does that mean that Paul was there on Mount Sinai when God gave the commandment? No, it says when the commandment came, the commandment had been given to Moses uh, over 1,800 years before Paul was born. So what is he talking about? He says, I was alive without the law once. He said, but then the commandment came. I grew up to the point to where I understood God's commandments. Now what happens? He says, sin came, right? What does it say in your King James Bible? But when the commandment came, sin what? Revived. Well, wait a minute. We look at the word revive, and uh, you're out swimming. You get caught by uh, a current or, or get into the water too deep, and you go under, and you start drowning and, and start breathing water instead of air, and that's not a good thing, and the lifeguard drags you out, and, and you're either not breathing or barely breathing, and they, what do they do? They revive you, don't they? 
You see, you had life, and now you're losing it, and now we're going to do intervention necessary to bring it back. And that's a good thing, right? Uh, This verse, it's not a good thing. You see, I was born a sinner. That sin was in my life. But where there is no law, sin is not imputed. It's not put to my record. Are we all together still? I was alive without the law once. We in America, if a little child were to get a hold of a loaded gun and pull the trigger and kill someone, would we put that little child on the elect- in the electric chair and, and kill them? No. Why? Because they are not culpable. What we're going to do is we're going to find the dirty, rotten scoundrel who left a loaded gun where a child could get a hold of it, and we're going to punish that person because they're the one responsible. Okay? Well, God is just. He doesn't punish, even though that child is born a sinner, He doesn't punish them until they're old enough to make their choice. You say, well, when does that happen? And uh, different cultures set different times. And uh, I I am so glad that I was raised in the Bible culture. So I didn't have to go out in the wilderness and eat bugs and uh, torture myself and do all these things to prove that I was an adult or uh, be bar mitzvahed when I got to... So many years old, memorize all these things that you never repeat again as long as you live. Uh, I mean, those are traditions. God says, when the commandment came. That means when you understand. A little child knows, well, I did a bad thing. But they don't understand the commandment. Now, some little children do. It's different for each person. That's why we have to be careful in dealing with the little children. Some, some people like uh, Paul, uh, the Rivera son, may, may never get to that point. And we just need to pray and pray for vil- vil- diligence and vigilance on our part. To watch and to talk with him and keep working with him to see if he ever does get to that point. But those people are safe. Because when Jesus died on the cross, how many sins did he pay for? All of them. And so we don't have to worry about limbo. We don't have to worry about purgatory. We don't have to worry about baptizing our babies to make sure that they're brought into the covenant uh, of God so that they will go to heaven. And, and uh, how many are there uh, several years ago on New Year's Eve when we did the um, uh, John Wycliffe movie and they had the, the woman there crying because some monk had told her her unbaptized baby became a firefly. And I, I remember going through that. People were watching that, and here this woman, you know, she's an actress and trying to portray weeping and all this sorrow, and people were snickering. Uh, They were going, nobody believes that. Yet, people did believe those things. 
You know why? Because they weren't teaching this thing. So, the first thing that we need to really get a hold of is that sin kills you. You are dead. You were born dead. You were born in the image of Adam, not the image that Adam was created in the image of God, because sin had marred that, and now God has to change that. But you know what also sin does? Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 59, if you would. Isaiah chapter 59 and verse 2. And I hope you understand as we're going through this, that if I stopped and took time to get every verse in the Bible that dealt with these subjects, uh, I'd never get the first lesson prepared. Uh, There's just too many Bible verses here. And and if we tried to cover them all, uh, we'd still be on lesson number one, God the Father, whose name uh, and titles are mentioned in the Bible uh, uh, thousands of times. Uh, we would we would never move anywhere. So we're summarizing. But Isaiah chapter 59, verse 2, it says, But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you, that he will not hear. And you can go on and, and read this, but the simple truth is stated as clearly as can be sin separates us from God. How does it separate us from God? The same way death separates us from our friends. We can no longer talk to that person. We no longer have communication with them. We can no longer be with that person who has passed from this life into the next. And when we sinned, Adam died and God says, I can't communicate with you anymore. I can't have you be with me anymore because you're dead. Your sins have separated you. The word that's used here is your iniquities, your guiltiness. And and let's go to John chapter 8 and spend a little time in in John chapter 8 because Jesus covers so, so many things here in this chapter. And and we'll just start in verse 21 of John chapter 8. Then said Jesus again unto them, I go my way, and ye shall seek me, and ye shall die in your sins. Whither I go, ye cannot come. So Jesus was arguing with the scribes and the Pharisees there and the religious leaders. And he says, listen, you're going to... Die in your sins. You can't come where I'm going. If we come down here to uh, verse 24, I said therefore unto you that ye shall die in your sins. For if you believe, if ye believe not that I am He, ye shall die in your sins. Now, how could you get any more clear than that? Jesus looked at him and he said, if you don't believe that I am he, you're going to die in your sins. And what's their next question? Look at it there. Who art thou? 
Uh, only God could make that statement. Isn't that true? Only God could say, listen, if you don't believe in me, you're going to die in your sins. Only God could make that statement. And they're saying, who are you? Who? What they were really saying is, who do you think you are? Because they knew one thing for sure. He wasn't God. And that was, the only, that was what they were wrong about, of course. Have you ever met somebody that was so sure of something wrong that you couldn't shake their faith no matter what? I mean, they're just absolutely positive. They're wrong. But, I mean, you couldn't separate them from their lie with a sledgehammer. I mean, they were holding on to it tight. It just really... Uh, they're never going to let go. Reminds me of the communists. How many of you remember them? Uh, communism's going to work. Every bit of history proves that it cannot work. Human nature proves it cannot work. History proves it cannot work. And today we call them Democrats. Because they still say it's going to work. Well, that's where the Pharisees were. Their religion was one. It's, and I'm sorry, if you're a registered Democrat, no offense, all right? Uh, I'm talking about the ones that are running things, okay? But the, the simple truth of the matter is, they said, who are you? And he said, Even the same, verse 25, that I said unto you from the beginning. In verse 28, he tells them, When ye have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall he know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself. But as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. And he that sent me is with me. The Father hath not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. Now, Jesus says, listen, when you lift me up, you're going to know. This statement is true. That's why the chief priest said, don't you understand? John chapter 11. We need to kill this man or our whole nation is going to perish. And he's going to bring together in one all the children of God. So the best thing we can do is kill this guy. Now, Jesus had to die. But they didn't have to volunteer for the job. But they did. And we get down to verse 44, and Jesus is going to tell them, You are of your father, the devil. And you know what their answer is? No, we're not the devil. You are. I mean... How petulant can you get? But this is where people go who allow their sins to separate them from God. You will believe anything if you refuse to believe the Bible. This is what the Bible talks about when Antichrist comes. Those that have heard the message and reject it, 
they're not going to be running around waving their Bibles saying, I finally understand the Bible's truth. No, they're going to be running around waving their Bibles saying, Jesus has come and it's Him right there. That's what the Bible says is going to happen. I don't care what Jack Van Impey puts in his movies or whoever else that does those things. The Bible says that they're going to believe the lie. The Bible says if it were possible, the Antichrist would deceive the very elect. Now, why isn't it possible? Because we won't be here. We leave before all that stuff starts. And so, our sin brings death. Death brings separation. We cannot bridge the gap between us and God. So now as we look at what salvation is, we're going to have to look at some terms here. And uh, I, I, I wish we had a whole night for each one. In fact, we could do... A whole month on atonement. I mean, we could, there's, there's that much depth. God uses these words to let us understand different aspects of His work of salvation and how deep salvation is. You know, um, maybe I'll just throw this illustration out there. How many of you have seen, uh, a beautiful artwork, uh, a painting, a, a pencil drawing. How many of you have ever seen one under a very strong magnifying glass? You see, that beautiful picture that was painted or drawn by someone that has much more skill than I'll ever have, you put it under uh, an oil painting under a very strong magnifying glass. And you know what it looks like? It just looks like big blobs of mess. I mean, that paint is all smeared, and, and you can see every imperfection, and you'll see that the lines aren't clear and they aren't straight. But when you're standing 15 feet away, guess what? It looks beautiful. Anything man does... The closer you examine it, the more problems you'll find. Uh, they did this one time. They took a finely uh, polished metal shaft and said, We have created the world's smallest drill bit. And they sent it to different places to be examined. And the, uh, I believe it was the Austrians got a hold of it, and they drilled a hole down the middle of the world's smallest drill bit, and then cut threads in it and put a screw in it and sent it back and said, not anymore. That's what man does. But how many of you have ever seen a microscopic picture of a plant? A blade of grass. You look at that, 
And then you can see all the little veins that go down in the crack in your sidewalk and bring up nutrients from the dust that falls from the sky and water that's trapped there. And you get green grass from brown dirt. I don't get it, but I I like it. I like green. I don't like it in the sidewalk, but I, I like it everywhere else. And yet, if I were to take that thing and take and cut it in little slices and put it under a very powerful microscope, you know what I would find out? I'd find out that there's an entire universe inside that blade of grass. Hundreds of thousands of little cells all attached to each other, working with each other in perfect harmony to take sunlight and turn it into food so that that plant will grow. How many are amazed by that kind of thing? I mean, I I just cannot. And yet, we can take the cells and blow them up to the big picture and find out there's an entire universe inside that cell. And then we can go to the individual parts of that cell and we'll find out there's another universe inside the nucleus, the mitochondria, the chloroplast, all of the different parts. And then we can get to the world of molecules and we find out there's an entire universe with little planets spinning around and uh, all kinds of things in there. And now they tell us not only do we have atomic particles, but our atomic particles are made up of subatomic particles. And we can't see a thing, but we know they're there. You see, people always question God's involvement in this world. The Bible says, for God so loved the world. You know how much he loved the world? He made it so complex that you and I will never figure it out. He made it so beautiful that no matter how deep we go, we get a whole new world of understanding. And our salvation is the same way. The first word we're going to look at is atonement. Now, the most simple definition of atonement is to make at one, to make, to, to remove disagreement, to make in agreement, uh, is the simplest word, uh, definition of atonement, and oftentimes um, I've used the uh, idea of rolling back. You see, atonement was something that happened on a regular basis. In the law, it happened every year on the day of atonement. We go to the book of Hebrews, and the references in your outline here, it says that there was a remembrance made of sins every year on the Day of Atonement. Now, why was a remembrance made? You see, the act of atonement, the ceremonies that were connected to the Day of Atonement, were to point us to Jesus Christ and His work on the cross. Now, the work that Jesus did would be an atonement, but it would be much more than that. 
it would be redemption. It would be propitiation. And we're going to go through all of those words in due turn. What Jesus did would not be repeated. But the Day of Atonement was something that was repeated. And let's go to Leviticus chapter 16. And if you've been through this many times, um, I don't apologize for going through it again. Because it is critical to understand what atonement is so that we can understand what salvation is. And if you're sitting here, here we go again, then I'll I'll tell you what, in a few moments when we have an altar call, you better come down and say, Lord, I, I need some help here. Because this is as important and as critical as it gets to your understanding. And so we come here to verse 16. It says, And the Lord spake unto Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they offered before the Lord and died. And the Lord said unto them, Speak unto Aaron thy brother, that he come not at all times into the holy place within the veil before the mercy seat, which is upon the ark, that he died not. For I will appear in a cloud upon the mercy seat. Now, how many of you remember the story of Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's two eldest sons, from what we understand? Go back to Leviticus chapter 10. The Bible says they offered strange fire before the Lord. The best we can understand was they were going into the golden altar of incense, and they did not have embers from the brazen altar. They made their own fire. And it says that the Lord consumed them. And it says fire went out from before the Lord. That means the mercy seat. That fire went through the veil. It burned Nadab and Abihu to little bits. They were dead in an instant in time. And Moses called... Uh, Aaron's uncle and, and his sons, and they came in and it says they carried them out in their coats. You see, they had on the garments of the priest. The fire didn't burn the priestly garments, just what was in them. God was trying to illustrate his holiness. He said, you don't just come in before God. You don't just come in any way. He's not the old man upstairs. Yes, God understands about your sin. But you need to understand about atonement. As we read through this chapter, God is going to lay out the rules and the ceremony involved in the Day of Atonement. It says, Thus shall Aaron come into the holy place with a young bullock for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. And he shall put on the holy linen coat, and he shall have the linen breeches upon his flesh, and he shall be girded with the linen girdle, and with the linen mitre shall he be attired. These are holy garments, therefore. These are holy garments. Therefore shall he wash his flesh in water, and so put them on. And he shall take of the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats for a sin offering, And one ram for a burnt offering. 
And Aaron shall offer his bullock for the sin offering, which is for himself, and make an atonement for himself and for his house. And he shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, and one lot for the Lord, and the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat upon which the Lord's lot fell, and offer him for a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make an atonement with him, and to let him go for a scapegoat into the wilderness." And Aaron shall bring the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and shall make an atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from off the altar before the Lord, and his hands full of sweet incense, beaten small, and bring it within the veil. And he shall put the incense upon the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is upon the testimony, that he die not. And he shall take of the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it with his finger upon the mercy seat eastward. And before the mercy seat shall he sprinkle of the blood with his finger seven times. Then shall he kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring his blood within the veiled And do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bullock, and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. And he shall make an atonement for the holy place, because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel, because of their transgressions in all their sins. And so shall he do for the tabernacle of the congregation that remaineth among them in the midst of their uncleanness. And... We really could and should read on to finish all the things that are connected there. But on this special day, Aaron would kill a young bullock, a young bull. And he would take of that blood and he would walk in to the holy place. And he would get a censer of coals of fire from the golden altar. He would take incense and he would reach behind that veil. And fill the most holy place with smoke. Now remember, there is no light in the most holy place. It was totally dark there. The only light was from the candlestick. He would then hang the censer and take that bowl of blood in his hand. And he would reach in there in total darkness and sprinkle the blood toward the center of the room. Because that's where the mercy seat was. Seven times. And then he would leave and he would go back out and they would offer that baby goat for the children of Israel and he would gather its blood and he would come in and he would go through that same process twice in that one day. And that was the only time he was allowed in the most holy place. Once a year. We read the book of Hebrews, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made plain. It was to show us that God was very serious about this thing called atonement. It said that if he did not do it exactly after the prescribed method, that he would die. Now, we have no record 
of any priest dying on the Day of Atonement. That tells us two things. Number one, it was not impossible to do what the Bible said, just the way God said in the Bible. Amen? And number two, that God is in the sin-forgiven business. That God wants to reconcile us. He wants to make things right. It is God who is initiating this, not you. The, we, we think that we want to do right, and in our minds we often beat ourselves up when we do things wrong. But the simple truth is, it's God that started this process, not man. It's God who explained to Moses and to Aaron and their sons how to do this. And exactly what was required. And God said, listen, he's going to make an atonement for himself and for the nation of Israel. He's going to make things right. How long did it last? Till next year when the Day of Atonement came again. That's where we get the idea of the rolling back. Because it wasn't a permanent thing. Because there's no way that Aaron and his sacrifices could obtain forgiveness for us because they made a remembrance of sins. Yet, when a person gets saved, it says, our sins will he remember no more. Aren't you glad about that? What was that song the girls used to sing? He remembered to forget. And... I love that song because it brings forth this point that God has chosen in His love for us to separate us from our sin. See, that's the next word we'll start with, Lord willing, next Thursday night. Justification. These are things that God does. Each one of these words gives us a different look into God's plan Uh, The best we can tell, Mount Sinai was somewhere around um, uh, 1600 B.C., somewhere in that neighborhood there. Um, uh, uh, God gave Moses the law and all of that. And I'll look up a better date when we get back together again next time, but... All those hundreds of years, they wandered in the wilderness 40 years, had over 400 years through the time of the judges. It was 600 B.C., nearly a thousand years when the temple was finally destroyed and the sacrifices were stopped. And every year, there was a day of atonement. Every year, there was blood put upon the horns of the altars. There was blood sprinkled in the darkness, in the cloud of incense, before and upon the mercy seat. God was trying to help us understand that this thing of atonement is something that He wants to happen. When you're dealing with forgiveness, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks... It's not God that has a problem with forgiveness. 
it's we that got the problem with forgiveness. This Day of Atonement helps us understand just a little bit of how careful and regulated and perfect God is in His atonement. He wants things made right, not swept under the carpet. God is not pretending things are okay. God wants things to be made right. Atonement. We cannot have Jesus suffer on the cross again and again and again. So he gave us atonement to teach us again and again and again how careful God is about making things right. So that when Jesus finished the work and performed the atonement, the eternal redemption, we could understand that things really were right and there will be no more remembrance for sins. And all God's people said, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this night, and Lord, I just ask that the Holy Spirit have freedom to bring back to our minds and our hearts these verses and help us to understand. And and Lord, certainly some here may be hearing this for the first time, uh, that the Holy Spirit would have freedom to teach and to allow these things to sink down in not only into their heads but into their hearts and understand that this idea of atonement is helping us will help us understand what salvation is all about lord let us read and read your word carefully and study it until we do understand what the words mean give us grace and lord we just ask that you would work in our hearts here tonight Before we finish that prayer, we'll just keep our heads.